Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving podcast. Okay, just before we get started this week, I want to address the discourse surrounding the situation in the Middle East. I just want to say one thing. No one is going to change their mind as a result of a tweet. No one is going to alter their point of view as a result of an Instagram comment. It's possible to reach either side of the coin on this from a position of moral integrity. And if you really believe that the other person who has enraged you is coming at it from a position other than that, which is to say on either side of this argument, that basically means a position of racism. If you really believe that that's where they're coming from, then okay. But most people aren't in that position. Most people haven't taken their position from that kind of motivation and their point of view is informed by what they consider to be a moral position. So if that's the situation, do you really need to insult them? Do you really need to call them the names that you are tempted to call them? Probably not, right? So probably don't do it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, today on the show, we've got one which has been bubbling under for a while. He's a extremely talented producer, a man who runs a great record label called 3024. And he's also someone who runs a mentorship program, which has become really popular and I think has added real value to a lot of people's lives and careers. So it's Martin. He is someone who I first got to know, must have been about 15 years ago now, when he emerged onto the, what was I guess the fledgling quote unquote post dubstep scene. 
with um, some really, really great music. And he's made a bunch of great albums and a whole load of really, really cool stuff over the course of the following 15 years or so. So yeah, great to have him on the show. Really great to have him on the show. Before we get started, a reminder that you can support the show either on Patreon or by giving a direct donation. Head over to scubaofficial.io slash support to do either of those two things. There are two levels to the Patreon subscription and there's also a Discord server that you can join regardless of whether you want to give us money or not. Hotflushcorners.com slash Discord gets you through to that server. So there's a really great bunch of people in there and we'd love to have you in there to join the conversation. Additionally, if you're not going to support, you could leave us a review or a rating or drop us a follow. Actually, I always say review or rating, but really following the show would be great too. So whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on, hit the follow button, hit the subscribe button. That's something which I've neglected in my entreaties to you. So yeah, if you haven't done that already, then please do that. It'd be great. And follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show. It's that playlist and contains a load of great Martin music this week in addition to all the other stuff and all the episodes and everything else. So yeah, okay, without further delay, here is Martin. Martin, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Um, thanks for having me. Looking forward to this uh, conversation. <laughs> yeah, I got a brief glimpse of your studio actually as, as, you were, as we were setting up. Looked, looked like a pretty nice space. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we've been here for a um, couple of years now, and uh, I guess uh, records and gear has started to uh, accumulate a little bit. Um, I think uh, when I moved from uh, the Netherlands to the States, I moved with just a laptop, and then I just started building and building and building, and it's kind of been expanding ever since. <laughs> I mean, that was a long time ago now, right? Yeah, I moved, uh, well, I was sort of traveling back and forth between uh, Holland and the US um, for a couple of years, I think between sort of 2004 and 2008. And then, uh, you know, definitively moved in uh, in 2008. Yeah, right. So 15 years ago. So having started with a with a laptop, yeah, what's your what's your setup now? What kind of what's, what's your kind of go to list of kit? Um, I mean, it sort of it expanded and also um, got a little bit smaller again. I think, um, you know, it's whatever sort of inspires me uh, is that what I use. Um, I guess, like I said, I sort of started with just a laptop uh, on a cardboard box. And uh, that's how I sort of made my tunes. Um, it wasn't even a, a studio desk. Then I started to buy loads of outboard gear. So I was uh, into synths for a little while. Then I sort of slimmed down again. Uh, then um, I dabbled with modular for a little bit. So it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, an ongoing project, I guess. But um, I, uh, you know, spoke over the last couple of years, spoke to loads of other artists about their setups. And uh, I think it was maybe Surgeon who said that, um, you know, every six months he changes his setup completely mm, yeah. uh, just to sort of spark more creativity again, you know. And um, I kind of like that idea. I mean, I'm not that strict, but um, I do think that, you know, whatever you use to make music uh, should sort of uh, always change, you know. Um, I, I think it'll get pretty stale if you just use the same kit all the time. Yeah, I think if you have kind of like yeah hard changes like that, it can be really useful. Like when if you like if you if you switch your laptop for example, like yeah, it just forces you to like you know jettison a few things. But if you yeah, if you're using outboard, like I think Surgeon mentioned that as well on the episode of of this podcast that I did with him, it can be really. Uh, it can focus the mind in a really effective way, right? Yeah. Just to to limit yourself to a few pieces of gear. 
Tell me about modular though. I've, I've well, I've I've very consciously taken the, the decision not to go anywhere near modular. Is it is it as problematic as <laughs> as people say? Um, I guess it depends on what you're planning to use it for. Um, so what I did was, um, well, I was always sort of in gu- into guitar pedals and effects and outboard effects and stuff like that. And um, for the longest time, I sort of used to make music on the computer and then uh, just process all the effects outboard, like the de- delays and reverbs and things like that, right? And so um, when I was sort of starting to look into modular, uh, I didn't really want to rebuild a synthesizer, but I thought maybe if I can have like a really nice effects rig, mm that could be sort of a good jumping off point, right? And so I sort of started, uh, you know, researching different types of modules and I quickly saw that you can do loads more with modular than just uh, use it for effects only or at least, you know, the sort of effects that you can process are so much more intricate than they are with guitar pedals, for example, or even plugins. Mm. And so I started sort of like building it that way and that slowly sort of started to expand and... You know, I added a VCO and I added some more filters and stuff like that. So it's a little bit, it's like either a really crappy synth or a really great effects rig. That's how I would describe my, uh, my modular. <laughs> so. can, can you be more specific when you, when you, when you say that you, know, you can get more intricate in the effects processing versus uh, pedals or, or plugins? Can you be more specific about that? I mean, um, you know, like um, sort of pretty standard effects like, um, like a filter, for example, there are pretty good filters in pedal form, uh, like wah pedals and things like that, right? It's basically a filter. Um, but obviously with the sort of uh, idea that you can modulate all these things and that you can modulate the modulating, um, you can sort of create all these different textures, right? So you have the same type of filters basically, but uh, the way you can sort of treat them and the way you can sort of assign them is is different in modular and that's kind of what makes it fun, you know, that, uh, yeah, there's all these sort of different possibilities and that um, gives you like really random results that I guess, unless you're some sort of mathematical super brain, you would never be able to conceive, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. So is the kind of um, cliche that, you know, musical output is inversely proportional to the amount of modules you've got, is is, is that not true in your experience? Um, I mean, I guess it, I guess it kind of is true because it's so easy to get carried away in possibilities in modular. And so, you know, before you know it, you're just worried about having more possibilities all the time and not necessarily making music with it, you know? And, uh, and so it is definitely sort of a black hole also financially, obviously, because you want to keep buying new things. And so, you know, there are way cheaper ways to achieve the the same sort of uh, sound, I would say, um, than than to do it with modular, right? But um, but but on the other hand, like if you try and sort of stay organized and you use it for something very functional, like an effects rig or maybe a sampler, um, I guess yeah, if you sort of stay disciplined, you could actually have a, a really nice um, addition to the studio, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so you should get uh, into it. <laughs> no, <I> mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's what everyone says when I've, you have modular, right? Like, I've like studiously avoided <laughs> such a path. Honestly, um, it, it's quite funny yeah, though. Um, it's quite funny when um, you know when you sort of talk with friends about modular or about you know you want 
you you sort of come up with a functionality that you're looking for, right? Like I want my module to do this and this and this. And then if you ask that question to someone that's really into modular, you always get more possibilities and more modules that to consider. And so there's right. always that sort of ever expanding kind of answer where, you know, you basically get more and more confused rather than uh, more clear <laughs> right. about what you're doing, you know? So, uh, so it's right. that. Right. Cause the, I guess the connectivity, yeah, just means that there's, a, you just kind of expand the, the potential number of solutions with each thing you add to, to the rig, right? Exactly that. Because, um, you know, the first thing I think I bought was a, just a filter, like a wasp filter or something, and uh, maybe a preamp. And then, you know, I added an LFO and then that LFO sort of gave me so much more possibilities just with those two modules. And then you add more to it, you know, you add a clock and you add, you know, like granular stuff to it. And before you know it, just with sort of four or five modules, you just have these, uh, you know, expanding possibilities, you know. But it's just so funny, like like the conversations are always like, oh, I, I need something to do this and this. Well, um, what about doing that and that and that and that as well? And then, you know, you just get confused and lost, so... But it's fun. It's uh, it's uh, enjoyable. Right. Yeah, sure. So, okay, I, I didn't intend to start this off talking about Studio Gear. But, I mean, I guess this this does kind of uh, link to what I, what I intended to kick off with, which is your mentorship program. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that you have conversations not dissimilar to this, right, in the, in the course of your mentorship. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some conversations that are about um, gear or about sort of technical problems. Uh, possibilities i suppose with making music mm. um i must say though that um, most of the mentoring um and like a lot of the sessions that i do have more to do with uh like process and workflow and uh right. sort of mental uh you know mental issues or mental blocks that come with making music you know that's kind of what the program i guess specializes in um mm. i think um you know i started um the program a couple years ago i think uh I was sort of thinking about it before the pandemic, but then obviously when the pandemic itself hit, um, I had a lot of time on my hands and actually um, was able to sort of develop those ideas a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and I noticed that uh, there's so much information out there about electronic music production, um, but most of that information is just very technical, you know, how to do this or how to make it sound like that or... Um, you know, how does this gear work? Or how does that software work? And um, I thought, you know, obviously that's also because a lot of these sort of tutorials and videos, they're made by software brands uh, or by hardware brands. So they want to sell gear or at least make you buy stuff, you know. And, um, and so, you know, I felt that there wasn't really a lot of information out there about like real actual music making, like what do you do in the studio and, you know, what's your thought process and what's your workflow and how do you not get stuck? And so when I sort of started to write that down for my own case, um, you know, all the stuff that I went through in my studio, making albums and making EPs and stuff or collaborating with other people, I thought if I just use all those experiences um, and, uh, and see if I can sort of turn that into a series of sessions about the sort of mental aspects of making music um, that maybe people would be interested in it, you know? And um, in the beginning, um, I expected like, you know, 10 Martin fans or so to sign up. <laughs> right. And, uh, and they did. 
which is a respect to them. And uh, But it, it started growing much, much quicker. It was also a good time because a lot of people were sitting at home uh, thinking about, uh, you know, about making music. And, um, and yeah, so it grew very, very quickly. And now it's this, uh, yeah, whole entire beast, uh, mentoring beast with, um, I think we have like a hundred people on there right now. So it's, yeah, uh, that's, that's substantial actually. Yeah. Yeah. C- considering they're all wanting guidance from you, right? <laughs> this is a, this is a big commitment on your, of your time as much as anything else, I suppose. I mean, I would say, um, when I started, most people that signed up probably signed up because they knew me or my music mm. and they were interested in how that was made and, um, you know, how I could maybe help them uh, to make music too. Um, but I think what happened was that because, you know, the people that were on the program in the beginning, they started releasing music and they started playing gigs and they started talking about the program as well. And so, the people that sign up now are not necessarily people that even know a lot about me personally, um, but they've heard really good things about the program. So they're actually signing up for the actual program and not just for me running it, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. I mean, the, the whole thing actually sounds a little bit similar. I mean, not entirely, but there are definite similarities with uh, the the program that Crust runs, actually, and we talked about it with him on the show a couple of weeks ago and I think a lot of what his approach is is trying to I guess get people to sort of think creatively yeah sorry you can hear my cat cat in the background <laughs> <laughs> I've had to let him in because he was meowing outside the door and I you know I just caved just then but now he's gonna be meowing <laughs> but yeah it, I, I think a lot of what he does is um yeah tr- trying to try to get people to express their creativity is that kind of a similar thing um yeah I think so because you know the, the thing is also that um like gear and uh, software and things like that, they, that always changes, right? So if you would teach people how to use, you know, such and such plugin, uh, in a year time even, uh, that plugin might not even be all that relevant anymore because there's like 15 newer plugins that do more, you know? And so I think I just got really uninterested in the sort of technical side of things and more and more interested in what people have to say, like what is the emotional message that people convey in their music and how how can we sort of get people um, to express that, you know? And um, yeah, I think maybe maybe it is a little bit similar to, um, um, I think cross coaches maybe a little bit more. It's more like a coach. It's, yeah, I mean, like. I suppose that's the that's the terminology. I, I wasn't really quite sure. Um, you know, I couldn't really pin him down on exactly, you know, in practical terms, what the difference might might be. You know, between yeah. the kind of sessions that you do. Yeah, yeah, but I think, um, yeah, in both cases, at least, it's less about teaching knowledge mm. and more about uh, bringing out things in people. You know, and uh, we did this uh, compilation album uh, with the mentoring program, so it's all people that were on the program. And it was called, It Was Always There. And um, uh, I think uh, Jeroen uh, Erosi, who I run the label with, he came up with the title. And that was one of those sort of conversations we had about the program was like, um, you know, it's not necessarily like all my knowledge, because I don't even know if I know all that much about production in the first place, you know. But um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm experienced, but there's always people that know more than me, you know. Um, but sure. obviously, in every, inside everyone, 
there is that bug, you know, that sort of uh, uh, raw idea of what you want to say in music. And the whole point of the program is to bring that out, you know, and that's where the title It Was Always There comes from. Like the, the, the idea was always there. It's just a matter of how to bring it out. Like that's kind of what we try to do. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I think there are definitely parallels. So let me ask you a couple of questions that I asked him, which are often difficult to answer, but are worth, worth considering. So do you have a definition of creativity itself? Um, I think, um, I mean, these are, these are, you know, questions you can write a whole book about, I suppose, but, um, yeah, of course, of course, that's, yeah, <laughs> I, I think, I think creativity is often, um, problem solving in a way. Um, right. Okay. Like yeah. the way, um, so for example, um, a couple of years ago, I was working on a project, uh, involving Goldie's Timeless, you know, the album, the yeah. classic album. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was sort of researching that uh, extensively and trying to uh, interview people that were there at the time and even also interview Goldie for it. And, um, you know, we were sort of talking about how limited equipment uh, makes you more creative, right? And the classic example for Goldie, for example, is um, that, you know, they use these Akai S900 or S950 samplers back in the day, him and like a Digo and Mark Mack from Reinforced, uh, trying to make that sort of early metalhead sound. And uh, they would sort of reprocess breakbeats in it and stuff like that. And uh, they would have to record stuff um, super fast uh, and then play it slower because they had very, very limited sample time in those samplers, right? Oh, was, that's how I did it. Yeah. Wow, I've always wondered that. Okay, that's an obvious hack, isn't it? But it makes so much sense. Yeah, because, yeah, okay. you know, the, the memory was like, they only have memory for, um, you know, four or five seconds of sample time. And so they would have yeah, to... max, right? Yeah. yeah, so the breakbeat would be like, you know, super fast. And then they would sample that and then play it lower on the keyboard. And that would be that sound. But it also added kind of like that sort of crunchiness because what the sampler would do was sort of like reprocess it. And when you play it slower, you know, it would sound a little bit different, right? And so these kind of um, ideas came from... Um, lack of uh, possibilities, right? And so to solve that problem of sample time, they would have to do something um, creative, right? And I think that's why I was saying like cre creativity is kind of like problem solving. Like you have something in your mind that you want to achieve. You don't really know how to do that. And so you try and solve that problem. And once you solve that problem, you can actually do what's in your mind, which is, you know, the sort of, creative outlet of it right so so i think that's why yeah like that's i think why uh, creativity um has to do with problem solving does that make sense at all <laughs> yeah, yeah no it absolutely does it's, it's funny because everyone has got a different i mean the reason I, I like asking these questions to different people is like you very often get completely different responses but in in kind of a similar direction and that's yeah that's a really interesting way of putting it actually so the second question was do you have a definition of art like what is art to you? Um, yeah, I think like if if sort of creativity would be the sort of process, right? Like the 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 um, the sort of road from initial idea to product. I, I mean, I hate the word product, but like the result, right? Like sure, you have yeah. an idea and you have the result, and then the way to get there—that's creativity. And I suppose the initial idea is what I would sort of call the art. And um, 
it's actually funny because um you know i listened to um some of the podcasts that you've done before and you know you talk uh, often about ai and about you know what the sort of implications for art uh, would be um and um i was sort of thinking about some you know very simple ai idea is that chat gpt right where you put like a, a prompt and then you know the ai through machine learning sort of comes up with a result but uh, where is the art in that like the art i would say is in the prompt right like whatever you put in there the initial idea is kind of what makes the result unique right because if someone else would put a different prompt in it then that would be their art you know what i mean right so it's a concept essentially that yeah. starts the process. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, you know, I guess throughout history and especially throughout sort of modern history, um, the idea of the sort of concept is more and more important, right? Like that's how abstract art works and like mm. action painting or, you know, these kind of like sort of, um, yeah, like modern art uh, expressions. They have more to do with the initial idea than with the actual result. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be pretty or like, or even pleasing, you know, it's more about what the original concept of it is, you know, it's like free jazz, like free jazz is art because um, the initial idea of total expression, um, that's the art. And whether it sounds like shit for a half hour or it sounds beautiful, it doesn't really matter, you know? I mean, that is, that is a, uh, I mean, people would have differing opinions on whether that matters or not, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't mean that you have to enjoy it, <laughs> you know. Um, but but right. but the concept of it, the concept of free jazz is that you're free, right? Like that, uh, you know, everyone can do what they want and react to each other's playing, uh, but there's no sort of boundaries to it, right? That's the concept of free jazz. And so that would be the art and not necessarily what the result of it is. So I suppose the uh, you know the, the obvious next question to that would be like how important is technical skill in in qualifying an artist to make those sort of artistic statements right because I mean you're, you're right obviously everything you said is true with regards to conceptual art in in visual art and and also jazz but you know every every one of those jazz musicians on those free jazz records is a brilliant musician yeah right mm -hmm. but but then you know taking what you've just said to its logical conclusion, it really could be anyone on those, uh, on those records. So how, so how do you feel about the, the, um, the importance or not of technical skill, which you acquire through, you know, study and practice and all the rest of it? Um, I mean, like strictly speaking, it wouldn't matter that much what your sort of skill is, I think. Um, and I mean, even in just sort of electronic music, there's people that are, brilliant brilliant producers and there's also people that are really quite basic you know mm -hmm. um but eventually they'll get to where they want to go through creativity right so i think i wouldn't i wouldn't really I, I think actually that in electronic music um the sort of importance of skill is kind of overstated quite a bit uh if you compare it to maybe other music or even other art you know it's like if we were all guitarists and we would we would constantly be talking about like guitar strings and amplifiers, you know, mm -hmm. but not really about the music that we were making, right? That's kind of what a lot of this sort of technical discourse seems to be about. It's like we're just talking about gear, but 
is really not that important. Like it's important what you make with it and what your sort of emotional statement with it is, right? So I would say it's actually, I think, I think in electronic music also maybe because, you know, the whole thing about like, oh, it's all these guys in their bedrooms tinkering away for years, you know, <laughs> that kind of, I, that sort of like archetype of electronic musicians. It just, yeah, like, I don't know. I don't think we need to be talking about gear all that much. Like, it's not that important, you know? Right. I mean, yes, I, I, I agree with that to a point, right? I mean, there is, I think, there is a barrier that, well, there is a bar that needs to be cleared, right? Usually. I mean, not always, though. I, I, it's difficult to talk about these things in absolute terms, right? Because yeah. there's always an exception. Yeah. But I think with... um. Because we're producers, basically, and people who make electronic music tend to well, that, that's that's the best definition of them, generally speaking. It's like you're, you're you're basically an engineer, really, even more than a producer to to a large extent. And certainly, what I think what people aspire to doing in electronic music is making new sounds, right? Like coming up with something that sounds different, sounds new, right? And I mean, that's a, I guess it's a that's a combination of engineering and production in ter- in practical terms. But I mean, is that really any different to, I mean, in terms of actually achieving that, I suppose it can be, it can be achieved accidentally mm-hmm. in the same way that a great piece of conceptual visual art can be achieved by anyone. But, you know, I mean, my question that I've got written down, which I, which I also asked Crust is, you know, how important are, or how useful, how much value are they in those, you know, YouTube production videos that t- teach you how to make a Skrillex bass sound? <laughs> you know, like, are they just completely irrelevant? Or I mean, what's the answer to this kind of general point? I mean, I disagree a little bit because um, I think maybe what the problem for an electronic musician is, is that we are both, right? We are musicians and engineers in one. And uh, that's something that's completely separated in, you know, if you were playing a band, you'd just be the guy, you know, playing the drums in the studio and someone else would make it sound good and record it well, right? And the thing is that we have to do those two things in one person. And um, that's actually something that's also in the mentoring program um, quite a lot is how to sort of split those two tasks so that you don't get confused with being one while you should be the other, you know? And so you want to figure out how you can be a musician and sort of have total expression and sort of flow state vibes to sort of, you know, write the most beautiful piece of music that you've ever written without having to think about side chaining and about, you know, uh, how to EQ stuff and how to saturate things or whatever. Like all those things are the engineering process for me at least. And so if you can split those two things then you'd probably maximize both as well because, and you know, at one point you'll be a sort of total creative person and, and, and at another moment you'd be that really sort of um, focused engineer that can then help make that piece of music sound amazing as well, right? So I think maybe splitting it is the answer, um, you know, to uh, make sure that you have sort of, you maximize both things. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question, actually, because, I mean, that's something that I have certainly struggled with over the years in in terms of, um, you know, viewing the two things as 
being cognizant of the fact that they are nominally different and in traditional recording terms and in the terms of the the um the historical process of making a record yes those things are absolutely different but then i i'm sort of pulled in the other, in the other direction sometimes by the you know the having the feeling that actually that is is almost a, it can be a fundamental part of of what you're trying to achieve you know because right going back to what I said before like if, if the object and this is not the whole object of course but if a big part of the object of the, of the exercise is to make something that really sounds different yeah and and this I, I think I think this is a yeah but different is creativity right like making something sound right. different is a creative choice making something sound good right right, is right, right. an engineering choice right but I mean how many times how many times have you not got like gotten like a you know, a demo from someone and, you know, you'd be like, wow, this song is amazing. And then the producer or the, you know, the musician would tell you something like, yeah, but you know, it sounds shit and it's this and this is a problem. And, you know, the bass doesn't hit that hard and the kick drum doesn't come through. And, and you're like, it doesn't matter. Like the music is amazing. Right. And so you value it for the arts, you know, for this sort of creative expression while, um, you know, the other person, thinks of it more as an engineering feat, right? And so that's one of those examples where you can see that uh, often in electronic music, we sort of conflate the two um, and, you know, sort of think that we're engineering stuff uh, more than that we're actually sort of expressing ourselves. Yeah, I don't think this is um, confined to electronic music though at all. No. I think the, the way that people like judge music today, and I think this has been true you know, for a number of decades. I mean, it's not just the songs. It's not just the performances. It's also the way the record as a whole sounds. Yeah. Right? It's like the kind of that kind of intangible and the, the obvious you know, comment that people make is, oh, that sounds really well produced. Yeah. When when actually sometimes they mean that's really well mixed or whatever. But it's just like the kind of the kind of overall feel, like aesthetic feeling of the record, I suppose. Yeah. You know, and that's such a key part, I think, of people's perception of, of recorded music. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, for us, <laughs> at least. <laughs> well, I th- <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, the deeper you get into the whole thing, then yes, the more, the more important it becomes. But I think even for people who know absolutely nothing about the process, yeah, you know, the, the sound of certain records, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of, an, of, a, of a good example. Um, I mean, to be honest, the example I always point to in terms of like an absolutely perfectly sounding record is Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins. Right. Just the sound of those tracks. Yeah. You know, more than the songs, more than the play. I mean, look, the songs are great and the, and the playing is great, but it's just, it's just this almost intangible feel of it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, um, there's a, you know, that, um, have you read that book, um, Zen and the Art of Mixing? Have you ever read that? No, no, I haven't actually. I, I actually have a copy of it, but I've never read it. So, so you only have to read the intro because in the intro okay. it says <laughs> um, it says that um, uh, you know mixing uh, is uh, no, no, no. What is it, Sadie? It's um, to convey an emotional message into a technical process. That's what mixing is, right? So, uh, even um, even if sort of according to the rules, something doesn't sound correct. Um, the whole point of mixing and uh, the sort of technical process of mixing is to convey that emotional message, right? And like the easiest example is again, uh, sort of a jazz record where, you know, there is a soloist, the one that you want to hear on the recording is the soloist, right? So 
that person might be a lot louder than the rest of the band. But that's the point of the record, right? The point of the record is to hear it, you know? And so if it would be a well-balanced record, it would maybe sound good according to the rules. But, you know, the whole message would be gone. You know, the whole sort of emotional value of it would be gone. So um, I guess, and that's, you know, probably the same with, uh, you know, your Smashing Pumpkins example. And I was sort of, I was just thinking of... um, you know, the early Queens of the Stone Age stuff, if you sort of listen to that on headphones, like it's amazing, like how, you know, all the, you know, all the guitar work sounds different and there's like loads of stereo stuff going on and crazy compression and like weird sort of fuzz. And it's a really, really great record, you know, actually, um, yeah, it's just very, very beautiful mix, uh, uh, you know, mixed record. Um, Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's all meant to sort of, uh, convey that energy that's in the music, right? That's in the songs. And otherwise it wouldn't have made sense at all to mix it that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, to go back to the original point, I mean, this is what is expected of the electronic musician, right? In one, <laughs> in achieve, one person. To achieve all these things at one... Well, that's, well, that's another question, right? So that that is the um, the kind of legend of the electronic musician, right? The, the kind of one person, I want to say one man, because it's historically that's usually what it's been, but like one person in a, in their bedroom, yeah. you know, as you said, the archetype. I mean, today, is that still a meaningful sort of caricature? Um, well, that was, um, you know, to sort of go back to the Goldie example. Um, I think Goldie is one of those people that was not that sort of bedroom uh, tech wizard, um, you know, and actually, it's really funny because interviewing people and talking to people about Goldie and about Timeless, you know, the sort of general thought of it was that uh, he didn't really do all that much technically. Um, and he had engineers do the work for him. Like even the phrasing of that, like do the work for him as if he wasn't doing anything. And the others, you know, like Rob Playford was actually creating the music, you know. And obviously, this is a massive point of discussion because no one was there in the studio to actually see who was doing what. But, mm. you know, the, the sort of general, if you look at all Goldie's work throughout the years with different engineers, it all sounds like Goldie, right? So right. at some point, um, the idea, the sort of creativity of him and his original ideas are translated by all these different engineers, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's actually similar. We had Tiger on the show for one of the first episodes, actually, yeah. and he uh, described his creative process, and it's basically the same thing, right? And and likewise, it still it always sounds like Tiger, right? Exactly that. And so um, that and 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 it's weird because even I think Goldie doesn't get enough credit for his studio skills just because uh, he might not be the one that's like you know adjusting the uh, reverb right the uh, compressor tail um, or, you know like yeah. all that kind of, yeah. yeah like who who cares like that's not the point you know um but I, I do think that you know people are like oh yeah it's just sort of lounging on the couch smoking a spliff and just telling people what to do but you know that actually is like the concept of making music and that's creativity you know and he definitely did way more than that i can tell you that but um, yeah, I think, you know, he doesn't get enough credit just because he wasn't that sort of pasty white kid, uh, you know, with his baseball cap backwards, uh, sitting in the bedroom, tinkering away on stuff like he wasn't that person, you know. And so uh, I don't know, maybe there's a, a lot more to that, uh, you know, to that story. But um, I definitely think that, um, yeah, that sort of bedroom 
producer idea. It's kind of, um, it, it might actually sort of get in the way of how we appreciate music, you know? Like if that whole idea was gone, maybe we could listen to music a little bit more objectively and not just judge it for, you know, whatever plugins or whatever cool effects people use, but listen to the musical idea a little bit more, you know? Yeah, I mean, as as you were telling that story about Goldie, the, I mean, the other example that I can think of, which is, you know, not from electronic music, so actually not directly relevant to what we're talking about here, but is... Um, uh, Nirvana, Nevermind, and actually, you know, funnily enough, the same producer as that Smashing Pumpkins record. It's like Butch Vig from from uh, from Garbage, and yeah, it's the um, I think it's the thirtieth anniversary. No, it can't be. Maybe it is. Yeah, it's the thirtieth anniversary of, of In Utero. I think. Yeah. This week, maybe. Um, and famously, In Utero was the the you know the album that Nevermind. Well, the, the album that Kurt Cobain wanted Nevermind to be. And never mind, you know, as as he put it, sounded like a Motley Crue record, right? <laughs> not because of, of the songs, but because of the way it was produced, right? Of, yeah. Because of this, those, those uh, settings on the compressor, yeah. right? Or the, or the reverbs or whatever. So it can be really, you know, it can have a profound impact upon the creative intention, I suppose, of the person who is nominally in charge. You know, you would have thought that Co Cobain was the most important person in, in how... Um, never mind sounded but you know not by his admission right yeah so. yeah yeah i mean it's a yeah obviously there are examples of um uh you know records that were more decided maybe on the mixing desk than right. uh in you know in the studio i mean like martin hannett you know who did all the factory records stuff like joy division and all that you know who who recorded stuff in certain ways and made stuff sound really dry you know that sort of post-punk kind of sound or uh you know the guy who did the beatles what's his name george martin yes you know, who did, martin, um, yeah. yeah yeah like you know but but i mean even there like those kind of techniques that they use or invented even um yeah or maybe even have more to do with creativity maybe than with technique right yeah sure i mean george martin was known as the fifth beatle i think for that reason yeah right yeah so let, let, let me ask you a separate question about the the program so all we've talked about really is music but do you do you touch upon other aspects of aspiring artists careers as well as just the the making of, of music and how much kind of interest do you have from participants in that side of things um so so when i sort of started to um i guess design the program um i started with very simple uh, proposition, which was, you know, what is my music making process and where do I sort of have blocks or experience blocks, right? Like to finish music or to, uh, you know, I get stuck in certain uh, routines maybe. And so the first section of the program was basically that. And I would kind of make it up, well, not make it up, but design it as I went along. Um, but very uh, early on in the program, so in the early uh, months of the pandemic, there was a whole lot of stuff going on outside of the music world as well, right? There was George Floyd and sort of all the discussions that uh, had to do with, um, you know, racism in the music world. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on as well as just the, the general uh, global pandemic, which is also not unimportant. And so um, pretty quickly... We started to do extra calls or sort of sessions where we would discuss those kind of things, you know, and um, 
after a while, I started to write sessions for that and, you know, talk about stuff like the scene and the community and uh, about world building and about, you know, how you sort of, uh, uh, how you start labels and all these kind of external things that didn't necessarily have to do with studio work, but do have to do with, uh, you know, being a musician in today's uh, music industry. And so those sessions are actually my favorite sessions because... Um, you know, talking about music, I can always talk about music. Like I, I love doing that, obviously. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there's always something to explore in uh, music making. But at the same time, um, I'm mo- more interested in people, you know, and in how people interact and how people can work together and how people can build stuff together, uh, you know, for the common good or, um, yeah, like how, how you can sort of build connections between people. And so I think that's also one of the strengths of the program is that uh, because there's all these people from all over the world that sign up, uh, they immediately have uh, a whole community that they can work with, right? That uh, can listen to their music, that can give them feedback, that can, uh, they can do projects together. Uh, some people start labels together or do comps where they feature each other. Um, there's so much going on kind of outside of my control and outside of my sessions that make it so interesting, you know? And um, I think that's also why the program has lasted for as long as it has, um, as opposed to maybe others that, you know, are more focused on tutorials uh, that, you know, once the tutorials are over, you're kind of gone, you know? But I think I think this sort of community aspect of it is essential, actually, because, um, you know, when I sort of started making music, the first thing I would say that really instilled that enthusiasm in me was the fact that there was a community already with other people that were making music, that were throwing parties, that were DJing, um, but also people that would write about it or, you know, do graphic design, make flyers or decorations or whatever, like that whole group of people that I sort of grew up in or that I came up in that's what sort of motivated me to keep going and to make music as well. Right. I mean, I guess that's kind of the same for you, right? Like when you started making music, you were already part of a little group of people that were doing things or not. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And likewise, I certainly found that extremely motivating at the outset. And I think it's really important actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you have that and if you sort of stimulate that community, um, it makes it so much easier also to, you know, to to sort of progress and to write music and release the music because you know you have a, you know, backing of your crew, basically, you know, people that are already supporting you. And so I think all those things are equally important to, you know, technical skill that we just talked about. Yeah, totally. So do you have a general philosophy about how um, how someone should go about I mean, this is a not a phrase I like, but building a career mm-hmm. in music, if I can put it like that. I mean, again, going back to the Crust interview that I did, he was very forthright about um, how previous music industry paradigms were of limited relevance nowadays and of limited use in, um, you know, in, in like figuring out what to do, you know, how to break through, how to get noticed and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I kind of, well, basically he said that um, if you would want to, for example, start a label, that's kind of like a, 
a trope from 20 years ago when people would start labels and release music and yeah i i think he meant like that being a a default thing that you go to yeah or like antiquated right that it shouldn't be something that you immediately go to not not say that you shouldn't do it but like it shouldn't be oh this is what i have to do right i think that's what he meant by that right yeah i think yeah um i mean yeah I, i think i agree i mean there's definitely um more possibilities now than just going the same route as everyone has for the last 20 years you know and uh and i yeah i think some people like crust um will definitely explore those new venues and uh and that could be really exciting results you know um i mean the same with uh Holly Herndon and, and Matt, you know, who also explore these sort of new venues, um, not necessarily um, stuff that I'm super interested in, but I do applaud, you know, trying to find these new directions and testing them and seeing if they can work or maybe they just work for a few people, but not for others, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think that's definitely uh, interesting. And as far as sort of um, the career question that you asked, um, obviously the way you and I built our career sort of coming up in like, you know, early 2000s, basically. And then, um, you know, having quite some success in the sort of 2010s. Um, Mm. Like you can't build a career like that anymore now. That's obvious, you know, with the way the music industry has changed and monetization has changed and, and also the audiences have changed, you know. So there's just no way you can tell people now to do exactly what you did because that's what's going to be successful. It's not, you know, it's definitely not. And so what you want to do is, um, first of all, have people make really great music. That's step number one. Um, And then step number two is to sit down and figure out what you can do with that music to have as many people listen to it or at least have as many people support what you do, right? And I think I think actually the answer lies in community because, um, like uh, an example that I use quite a lot is um, the sort of seventies punk scene where um, you know there was loads of bands that were completely outside of the mainstream, and they had their own circuit of venues that they would play at, and they would have their own magazines, and they would have their own merch, and they would have you know, their own bands, obviously, their own journalists, et cetera, et cetera. And so that little ecosystem of people that would just work together and support each other, even though that ecosystem wasn't very large, um, it was possible for musicians to thrive inside it, right? Without having to make that one song that would then hit the top 40 or whatever, right? And so I really like that idea of how you can have these sort of smaller scenes that just sort of work together and um, support each other. And that would, that could be enough for musicians to, to live off of music, you know, and without having to like the worst thing I think for a musician is that they would have to adapt their art um, to, to be able to make a living. Right. Right. Like suppose that we would all have to write, uh, you know, like music that would work well on playlists, you know, like if that was the only way to make, it would be awful, <laughs> I, right? 
<laughs> I, I, I think that is what people some people are doing that already, but quite often <laughs> yeah, do. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but not. I don't want to do that. Like, I'm not interested in that. Right. And so, Hang on, let, let me let me st- let me stop you there though. Yeah. For 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 a moment, because I mean, I I, I totally agree with you, and particularly in in that <laughs> in that example. But you know, you could argue that you know the whole concept of making a 12 track album is that as well, you know, or making a six minute tune to fit on a 12 inch or whatever, you know, like there is a certain degree of adaptation, I think, which goes on to fit what, what the, the expectations, either of the format or, you know, some industry norm you need to cram yourself into mm-hmm. all the expectations of the audience. Right. So that, so just to push back slightly on what you're saying, like, I think there are compromise. I mean, compromises may be the wrong way of putting it, but there are, there are shapes you have to fit your art into, you know. Yeah. You don't. You don't just have complete free reign, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't agree with that because. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. <laughs> um, because I think. Well, I think I make six-minute tunes mostly because um, since 1995 I've been listening to six-minute tunes. You know, and so if I make stuff that's geared towards sort of dance floor and, you know, that's geared towards having it on a record or whatever. I don't think I would actually write music and then all of a sudden at six minutes I would stop because the vinyl would run out or whatever. Like that's not my, that's not a decision I make when I'm making the music, right? But obviously I am used to six minute arrangements and six minute tunes because that's what I do all day long every day, right? So I don't think I actually use the sort of constraints of vinyl to, you know, to make my tune six minutes long, right? Mm-hmm. And But I think it's a different sort of thinking if you would have amazing ideas, but you would just stop at three minutes because you know that people who listen to playlists don't listen beyond three minutes. You know what I mean? Or is that the same thing? I mean, you? Okay. Well, well, yeah, well, yes, I think yes, but... You know, the, the reason that you... The intention, intention is if you're stopping at three minutes because it need, the playlist tells you to. Yeah, yeah, I, I, or, sure, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Okay. But, but let, me, let, me, let me just let, let me reply to that by saying, you know, the, the reason that you're used, and, and, and the same is true for me, by the way, the reason that we were used to thinking about dance records in that kind of a way was the fact that they had initially been made in that way to fit on in vinyl or to fit a DJ set and yeah, you know, whatever. Right. Right. And, and, and this is, this is a kind of historical paradigm that we grew up with, but at some stage, presumably if playlisting continues to be as ubiquitous as it is, particularly for music discovery and people, you know, the, you know, there are many people now who are, who might consider themselves to be serious about music or who are kids who are just getting into music through that kind of mechanism for whom a three-minute track would be just as normal as a six-minute track would be for us, Yeah. right? Yeah. But are you saying, are, are you arguing that that is legitimate if, if that's where you, you come from? And, and the problem is if you start trying to change to fit into a shifting paradigm. Is, is that your point or, is, or have I got that wrong? I mean, I'm not saying three-minute tunes are bad. Um, you know, it's just that obvi- it, it is what you said, like, um, you know, our sort of historic perspective makes us um, inclined to express our ideas into six-minute formats, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just as uh, people now um, may be able to do that in three minutes. You know, there's other other reasons for that too. I mean, you know, even music that you can DJ, like 
with the advent of CDJs and looping functions. Right. You don't necessarily have to have a six minute track. You can just do it with three minutes too and just loop wherever you like it, you know, or queue wherever you like it. So so that's also, and that's, for example, something you see in modern DMB where uh, tracks get shorter and shorter and shorter mm. because really what it's only about is a, a short intro and then a drop. And then after that first drop, you want to get back to the next drop, right? So... Um, so those tunes are getting shorter and shorter. If you look at uh, stuff that came out around um, the turn of the century and now, like all those tracks are now shorter, you know? A lot shorter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Which I think is interesting. I mean, I'm not, you know, definitely not uh, one of those sort of old men moaning that think that everything is worse now. Not at all. You know, I'm actually intrigued by how all these things are developing and, you know, what the... Uh, the musical environment um, commands us to do in terms of um, the way we make music, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So to return to what you were saying about the importance of community and the way smaller scenes can support themselves, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that the way that... You know, culture has fragmented more generally in the last 10, say 10, 15 years, mostly in the last 10 years, actually, um, really means that there are, I think there are like fragmented audiences which are substantial enough for people to, yeah, like you said, make make a living. Yeah. Now, those things re- rely on infrastructure, though. So, um, I mean, in, in, in the case of electronic music, or certainly, say, let's say, quote-unquote, underground electronic music, like Bandcamp is, is really important. And actually, it's really important in, in a certain other s- small scenes as well, outside of electronic music too. But, I mean, uh, Bandcamp has been sold a couple of times in the last couple of years. Yeah. And and actually, this is something I've talked about a bit on the show too, and I'd love to get your take. Like, Is Bandcamp becoming a bit of a single point of failure in this self-supporting ecosystem, which we would like to see uh, thrive? Um, I think we don't know yet. Um, even when, it, it, I, I guess it was um, bought by Epic before, right? Yeah. The sort of gaming uh, gaming company. And um, mm. there were some changes, but it was still pretty much the same concept and the same, you know, the same way you could work with Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, I, I think now it's um, a sort of publishing company that bought it and I have no idea what they're going to be doing but um well there's two things i think the first thing is that uh as a sort of community or as a scene 
you should never get hung up on one party to uh you know to sustain you right so if it's bandcamp today that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be bandcamp in two years time you know and yeah that could be another platform coming up or uh, another way to sort of get music to people or to connect people or uh, you know this it's definitely not just Bandcamp it's just that Bandcamp right now is the best way right mm-hmm. so I think that's important and the other thing is that uh, there's kind of like a natural cycle in tech anyway where uh, it always starts with uh, some sort of idea that breaks the rules and that idea becomes very, very popular, and then it becomes targeted by investors, and then the idea becomes shitter and shitter, right? And so, <laughs> right. Um, and so that that's kind of like we pretty much know now that that's a natural cycle of uh, tech, right? Hmm. And so you see it with all the social media uh, platforms, you know, that get worse and worse um, because people, I guess, you know they're really good when they're growing. And then once they can't grow no further, there has to be another way to make money off of them. And then that's where the ads come in and the, you know, the paying for blue checks or whatever else you need to do to then make more money on it. Yeah, the yeah. algorithm which which prioritizes content, which generated, generates clicks, which is to say the content which is the shitty content, let's be honest. Yeah, so, so if you then translate that to Bandcamp, um you know we're really not you know it's not that bad like um actually we can still sort of use it but um there could be uh, a time when it's going to get shitter and shitter just like all those other platforms yeah i mean i think that's like like you said that should be expected but i I guess what i was getting at was that I mean, you're, you're right. It, it is still very much usable now. I don't think there's really any, any been noticeable difference since the first sale. Yeah. But I think if you know if it did go down tomorrow, like if the new owners just decided to you know decided that they had a totally different use to the whole for the whole thing, and that it was no longer going to be available to be used in the way that it's used now, like that would be extremely damaging. Yeah. For the underground music scene, for want of a better term, right? Well. Only because we don't really have an alternative yet, you know. So once that uh, is developed or once, you know, I guess if people see Bandcamp getting worse, automatically you're going to be thinking about what to do as an alternative, right? And so hopefully if um, that, uh, I think it's called enchidification, right? Like that's a word (laughs) that, uh, you know, if that happens (laughs) and it happens in very quickly, um, yeah, then we might be uh, in trouble. But if it happens gradually, then at the same time, there will be new developments that hopefully uh, create something like Bandcamp or close to Bandcamp or maybe something completely different that works just as well or better. You know, mm. we just don't know. I mean, like I'm it's weird. Um, I'm not a very technical person. So for me, it's always kind of hard to go deeper into these uh, uh, subjects. but. I do see some sort of like natural flow between, you know, how ideas rise and everyone's really enthusiastic about them. And then slowly but surely they just get worse and worse, you know, and uh, that usually gives rise to new ideas again. So so there is this sort of like weird like wave. um, And I think Bandcamp is just part of that and definitely one of those waves. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it. 
at the base level, it's just quite an elegant solution for people to sell their music directly. Yeah. You know, it's not like super complicated. You'd think it would be fairly easy for someone just to build another one, you know, just to have as an alternative or a competitor in the marketplace even. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's not like there aren't competitors in, in you know, commercial download sites or streaming sites or whatever. And you would think that there would be a, uh, there would be space for more than one serious player in the kind of direct to consumer model, you know? Well, the one silver lining uh, about Bandcamp, and I think that's maybe the most important thing about it, is that you know uh, who buys your stuff, right? And Yeah, and you get their email address, you know? Exactly. So, so even, you know, if Bandcamp, I don't like, I don't know, like I like people at Bandcamp, so it just sounds like I'm just like, you know, predicting their demise or whatever. It's not like that at all. But the one thing that as a musician or as a label uh, is really important about Bandcamp is that you know your audience. And uh, the problem with uh, bigger uh, streaming platforms is that you're cut off from your audience. So the platform knows, knows your audience, but you don't, you know. And so even if, you know, God forbid Bandcamp would um, have a demise, um, at least what you can do is take your audience and bring it to any other platform that's coming up and you have the same people that you can reach, right? Mm. And I think that's really what keeps that community um, afloat because if you know what your, who your audience is and you have new music or uh, new merch or new cassettes or whatever that you want to sell uh, or that you uh, want to release, then at least you know where your buyers are, right? And so that's, I think, the essential part about Bandcamp. Not necessarily the Bandcamp platform, but just the idea that you can collect contact details from your audience, like the people that are most into your music because they've already spent money on it. And so they are very inclined maybe to do that again. And so that's really the gold that you have as a musician. And that's something that you should always try and sort of build upon. Um, and if you do that, then, you know, that actually sort of keeps your community afloat, I think. Yeah, actually, this is a really interesting point because... One of the things that I think is being discussed, or certainly been discussed um, amongst the sort of commentators, is the, the potential ability to move between social media platforms, bringing your followers with you. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the, what prompted this was you know, the new Threads platform being launched by Facebook and linked to Instagram. And obviously, that's the same company, but the ability to port your followers directly over to this new platform um i think i think that kind of opened people's eyes to the possibility that maybe there could be a regular regulatory change which gave people ownership of their data in that sense you know so when you move to a new platform you can take your not just your personal data but the data of people who are following you obviously with their consent too and it strikes me that that would be extremely beneficial for music platforms right and that would be an extremely useful regulatory change that that people could make to um, to stream platforms because obviously streaming platforms aren't just streams. You have followers there as well and people who follow your playlist and whatever. And there is a certain degree of community building which goes on on those platforms. But obviously, like you said, you don't, as you as the artist, don't get any sort of control over it at all, you know, and you don't have, you're not able to, certainly outside of the platform, you're not able to do anything and you're actually you're not able to message people really with any kind of degree of effectiveness yeah. through those big streaming platforms either, right? So it seems to me that that, that 
I mean, you know, regulation has not been great, obviously, with, with big tech in the last 20 years. That's putting it mildly. And, and you, you know, there, there is a process actually going back to what you're, you know, going back to AI. Like there is a process going on now to try and catch up in that sense. And it seems to me that it's not actually too late to really improve the way big tech, even you know, the legacy big tech, improve the way that's regulated too, right? Yeah, I mean... Even if you would be able to, um, like, it, it's weird because, you know, social media platforms, it's always been kind of like one-way communication, right? Where uh, you send out a message and then, yes, there's people that can like it and that can comment on it, but it's really quite limited uh, interaction, right? Like, there's not really a lot that yeah. you can do with that. So uh, even if you if it would be regulated that you could take followers across platforms and stuff, that's nice, you know, that's great. Uh, but that still doesn't have quite the same value as, um, for example, your Bandcamp customers. You know what I mean? Like it's still yeah, it's it's a different. It thing. depends on what yeah, it depends on what you can do on those platforms uh, with those people. Mm. Um, that's that's also important, right? So even just taking followers, then it's basically just taking a number with you everywhere. Like you know, you have eighteen thousand people here, and you also have eighteen thousand there. You know. But it's, it's what you can do with them and how you can reach them personally. That's, I think, what's important about the one on Bandcamp. But, um, yeah. but I understand what you mean, though. It might be, um, yeah, it might be at least a, a small step in, in the right direction, you know, that, you know, artists, they have audiences. Like, the, there's obviously audiences on social media. Um, but most of that, I think, would be built by the artists, right? And so kind of weird that that audience then cannot leave the platform when you leave and go somewhere else, you know? Hmm. So, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, yeah, like with, with social media, it's just a bit more limited, right? Like you can't really talk to any of those people, you know, one by one and sort of inform them of what you're, what you're doing. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that's due to limitations imposed by the platforms themselves, right? Yes, yeah, it depends on the platform. I mean, you, in, the, in, the early, in the early days, you could message everyone on Facebook, you could, uh, you know. Yeah. But I, I think, I mean, the, the restrictions that I think were actually part of the um, the regulation, the limited regulation that was actually imposed, right? But, um, I, yeah, I mean, to, to, me, to me, like, government has just totally failed in, in, in this area. Um, and... Like I said, I don't think it's necessarily too late. Let me ask you about, go back to the AI thing though and ask you the question that I've been asking quite a few people, which is regarding large language models and the way they learn, the way they're taught. Yeah. Like, how do you feel about your, um, I was going to say music and then I was going to say content and I'm not quite sure, you know, because <laughs> obviously it's not just music, you know? Yeah. Like how do you feel about your stuff, to put it um, glibly, being used to inform these things? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I was hoping you were just going to ask me, what do you think about AI? And then I could just sort of riff <laughs> on that. Um, and not necessarily. No, this, is, this is specific. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I mean, first of all, like my content, you know, or at least sort of all my sort of uh, yeah, creative expression, whether it be music or something else, hmm. uh, being used in these large language models. Uh, I mean, it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of 
what these model models uh, produce, right? That yeah, I don't know. Like uh, it, it feels very insignificant, you know. So I must say, I've not really sure. But but without without the um, without the data to be trained on, then they're nothing, right? So yes, maybe it's it's a speck in the you know a drop in the ocean. Yeah, but but they're all significant drops, right? You know. Well, so what I'm more worried about is that you know these sort of models. What they do is basically scour information, right? Like uh, they look at information and then uh, they base their sort of uh, models on that. And so if we put a prompt in that machine, then it's going to go and use all that information to give us an answer, right? That's that's sort of technically what AI does, whether it be... And that's that's ChatGBT, the kind of, that kind of chatbot, yeah. yeah. Or like Google Bard or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that's how those... those I mean, there are different applications for large language models, but yeah, that's certainly the most common one. Yeah, but but like even if, you know, you can do that for music too, right? Like uh, write a Drake song or, uh, you know, stuff like that. So, so, but the thing is that um, what is the sort of, like what is the pool of information that these models use, right? It's the internet. And Mm -hmm. for me, you know, all the information on the internet, would you say that that's an accurate, uh, reliable pool of information to build a model on i would say no because i think if you would take all the information on the internet um it's definitely skewed towards certain things like there's way more misinformation on the internet than i think there is in sort of real life certain voices on the internet are way more amplified than they are in real life and so mm-hmm. if you sort of take that as the sort of starting point of your model you're going to have a flawed model to begin with, right? Because... Well, I suppose it it depends on what you're hoping to get from that model. Yeah, well, I want accuracy. I want something good from the model, right? I want to have... And that's also, I think, for example, uh, even in these very simple chat GPT um, examples where people put in a prompt and then, you know, the wrong information comes up. And that's not because the models are wrong, I think, but it's because the pool of information that the models use um, is overflowing with bad information, right? Or inaccurate information. I suppose that's that's the chat that's the challenge of the person who's building the model, right? Is to yeah. is to sift through it and try and make some sense of it. Yeah, but there's so much information that there's it's going to be impossible, I think, to sort of curate that accurate accurately, right? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, my experience of using chats GPT is that it's pretty good, actually. Right, right. And certainly not infallible, yeah. but um, remarkably, I was going to say accurate. I don't know if accurate is the right word. I mean, it's certainly not without its problems, Yeah. but I mean, certainly compared to using, say if I want to research something, say if I'm going to write an article and I want to research something, yeah. and I have done a few of these things recently, I find that using ChatGPT is infinitely preferable to just to, just to Googling stuff. Right. You know, And obviously you, obviously you want to, cross-reference and you don't want to just take everything it says at face value yeah but i've found that it's remarkably good actually and and i you know i I share your concerns absolutely but in in practice i found that it exceeded my expectations well I, i read somewhere that um you know of all the news articles that are written on the internet i think three quarters or more are written by white men right um, <laughs> right and so I'm surprised it's that it's that low. <laughs> but I'm just saying that you know, like a lot of 
like we are white men, you know, and so maybe we have certain blind spots where we can't see how bad the information on the internet actually is because mm -hmm. it's catered to us, right? And so if you wouldn't be a white man and you would look at the information that comes up, for example, when you Google stuff, you know, um, you could see that the quality of that information is quite low, you know. And um, it was funny because, you know, I obviously knew that you were going to ask me about AI. <laughs> so um, I Googled uh, a little while ago, um, a couple of days ago, I Googled something like, um, should men make more money than women in, in Google? Like that's kind of a fundamental question, right? Right. And I think I wrote down the first result was, if a wife makes more, marriages struggle. And so that's the very first thing that comes up on Google, which, you know, is crazy that that's like the first, the first thing that comes up. I mean, I'm, I'm without knowing, without having read that article, presumably that's some data-related conclusion. Yeah, but that was the, right? first, the first hit on Google, by Google. Uh-huh. So not an article. It was the first hit that came up on, on Google, you know, like the sort of right. standard answers that you get when you ask oh, okay. a simple oh, right, question. Right, 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 right. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, okay. Sorry, yeah. So anyway, but I'm just saying that, um, like, really sort of fundamental questions, uh, if you sort of go on the internet, like there's so much flawed information out there, right? And so I'm just saying that I'm very worried that if, uh, AI uses models and sort of scans the internet for answers. And, you know, 90%, no, not 90, but maybe 75% of the answers are wrong. Then the model is also not going to give us very good results, or at least sort of give, up, give us results that already reinforce bad information on the internet, you know? Mm. And so that's kind of what I'm like. Sure. And that's also, I think, why, you know, when you, for example, if you sort of try to translate it to music, um, that's why I think that if you would put a prompt um, in it that says something like, you know, compose a Drake song with uh, Drake lyrics, you know, what you get is kind of like a very pastiche, very obvious, uh, very shallow uh, representation of the music of Drake and his lyrics, you know, because I think that has to do with the quality of information that these models use, right? I think it's also the quality of interpretation too. So I think that that would be the pushback from techie types anyway. Yeah. You know, I think... Well, and, and the unoriginality of the prompt. <laughs> right. Which is another thing right. that, you know, that's obviously because the person that puts in the prompt is not very creative. If you ask someone to do a Drake song, that's not like a creative expression, right? It's just... Mm. You ask for a cheap copy and that's what you get. Yeah. So... Yeah, totally. But I think that, um, like I said, I, I think the pushback from the industry as it were, would be that, you know, the the quality of information can be controlled, might be able to be controlled for, they would say can be controlled for, by a more intelligent, quote unquote, algorithm, mm -hmm. you know, sifting through it. Because, I mean, obviously, we would say, as humans, we would say, you know, we can go through the, the, um, the a Google search, list of Google search results, mm -hmm. and separate the wheat from the chaff yeah and i suppose the um like i said the pushback would be that that will be possible from an ai perspective even if it's not great now that will be expanding or the the efficiency will be expanding and the the quality will be increasing exponentially 
over the coming years. So you think it'll get better? Well, I think that's that's what the people in the industry would say. That would, that would be the the pushback. And I've certainly seen projections saying that I think the um the supposed IQ of ChatGPT4 is like 140 or something and they project or maybe it's less than that, 120 or whatever and they project it to get to over a thousand with by the end of a decade or something like that, right? Right. Um and and these are obviously meaningless figures but you can kind of see what they're getting at right the direction of travel is the kind of important bit so just to return to my original question though like what is your what's your kind of gut feeling about having your stuff used for i mean just to go back to what i was saying about big tech i mean ultimately what's going to happen with these things is that certain companies are going to earn billions if not trillions of dollars from the implementation of this stuff so should there be, I suppose my real question is that, should there be a regulate, regulatory intervention which gives people better say, more direct say about what is used and what isn't used? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's a reasonable answer. That's a reasonable answer. Yes. Um, it, it's, I mean, I guess it's because... Why, why is it? Like, I'm tr- just trying to sort of formulate why I don't know this question. <laughs> um, I think maybe it's because, um, I guess because so far, the sort of applications of AI, you know, the sort of prompting and uh, giving you results. Well, I mean, there's two, the, I see AI in two ways. They have the sort of prompt and result um, AI, right? Like so chat GPT model. And then another one is uh, that it's kind of like a tool that you can use a very smart tool to do certain things, right? Like uh, uh, getting stems out of a track or whatever, which is more like a technical application. And I guess when it comes to that, it's fine. Like that has not not much to do with machine learning in the sense that it's not using people's content, right? It's just a technical uh, process. At least that's how I understand it. I mean, Matt Matt's probably going to, you know, have a different opinion about that. But um, I think... I spoke. Well, I'm going to say because like, I'm not actually sure the answer to that question either. But maybe. Well, it uses learning, I guess. Right, right. Maybe they need it needs stuff to to figure out how to do it on, right? So maybe that requires that sort of input. Yeah. A- anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know. Like the way I sort of see AI at the moment, um, it doesn't really affect me all that much because, like, the sort of content between quotation marks that I make, I haven't seen that used in in like any sort of meaningful way where I'd be like offended mm. that they used my music or my writing or whatever or something, right? So mm. maybe it takes a little bit longer for me to understand what the implications of it are mm. um, to be able to say, yes, I'm fine with that or no, I hate this, you know? Right. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? What's your, what's your, like your music, for example? Well, I mean, I yeah, I mean, like I said, I've asked quite a few people this question, and I before I started asking it, I I anticipated there to be a much more uh, strong negative reaction to it, but mostly I've had responses quite like the one you've just given. Actually, people aren't quite sure and sort of see themselves as being slightly to one side of it, you know. Yeah, and I suppose what I think about it is. Um, well, actually, I, I strongly think there should be government regulation, actually. That, that's one thing that I, I really do feel strongly about. And I think um, there should be a very easy way of opting out. Um, and I think 
that should be able, you should be able to do it as an artist, and I also think you should be able to do that as any sort of rights holder should be able to do that. Yeah. Right. So you could, you should as a label owner, for example, you should be able to say no. You should, there should be a box you click when you upload something to your aggregator or whatever you use to service the the platforms. You know, it should be. Um, it should be. I, well, I had this conversation with Matt actually. So it, one of the things he's been doing is there's, there's a there's a there's a website called Have I Been Trained and it's to do with visual art actually. So it's, it's stuff to do with like the, the Dali uh, app and that kind of stuff. So they've successfully implemented a, a way of getting enabling visual artists to be able to opt out of it. And I think it should be more. Well, I think in an ideal world, it should be opt in. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like it should be. If you if you want to be able to, like the default should be you're out, right? It shouldn't be you. You have the option to opt out. It should be you know if you want to be in, you can you click a box to be in. I think, mate, as Matt said, he thought oh, that was a uh, an, an unrealistic regulatory goal, and maybe it is. But I think in an idea, well, that's what it should be. But but in terms of like what I feel instinctively about it, I, I mean, I suppose we're, we're, you know, I suppose I have a similar ambivalence in my attitude to, you know, and I suppose, and some of this I think is a natural artist's sort of self-deprecating view of their own output. I think everyone has this to a, to a greater or lesser extent, you know, you think, oh, well, how can little old me, you know, affect this stuff and my, my art, which I sort of, I'm proud of, but secretly hate as, <laughs> as, as many of us do. Right. Well, I think I think this this question a question lives in a gray area, right? Because if you sort of look at musical like your rights, your your sort of copyrights, um, obviously, you know, I I like to own my own music, and uh, if someone is going to use my music for something for a commercial end, um, then I need to be notified and I need to be paid, right? Because it's my right. stuff, yeah, sure. you know. Um, on the other hand, uh, we are musicians, and so we release music, literally release it out into the world um, for people to enjoy for free, right? And so where does this story, you know, this sort of machine learning story where, uh, you know, machines sort of scour the internet for information, where does this story live on that timeline of, you know, holding on to your copyrights? but at the same time having your music be in the public domain, right? And, and so where on that line is this? And I think that's kind of still a little bit of a to be determined. Uh, or maybe, you know, we I would have, we would just both have to ask someone that knows a lot more about it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I'd pretty strongly argue that the, the companies that are going to make money out of this are either the existing big ones or ones which or ones which currently exist and have a theoretically very high valuation, right? So I think AI, open AI is theoretically valued at like 90 billion or something, right? And Microsoft has got a big stake in open AI. So it's like to me to me it's pretty it's pretty obviously like very commercial even at this point. Right. You know, which which is why I think there should be regulation. You know, I think I think there should be a Right. A, a definite and muscular intervention, right? <laughs> internationally, ideally. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like to be to be super honest, like I haven't looked into it that far. But the way you sort of explain it now, yeah, I think if it's for sort of clear commercial ends, 
uh, and they are going to use your intellectual property, then by all means, you know, it'd be better if you have uh, control over it before um, it, you know, gets out of hand. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Tough, tough subject. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It absolutely is. And I think it challenges like your preconceptions as much as anything else. It's, it's a, I mean, I have spent a long time trying to get my head around this stuff. And I think um, it's something that everyone is going to have to do, frankly. In the, in the coming years, because I think it's going to touch just about everything. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think the one thing that I wanted to say about it um, still is that, um, like, I'm, it's not like I'm anti-tech. Uh, I think, you know, you can, you can have amazing solutions to, to problems, but um, I also am kind of weary about tech being quite one-sided and one, you know, that it's always sort of a, a prominent voice in society where... I think there should be more space for other voices as well, you know, and that's what kind of what I was trying to say with them, you know, the sort of information, how, like how I see the internet. I, I don't see the internet as an accurate reflection of society or uh, the real world, you know. Yeah. And I think so, and I think that sort of skewed information is going to get you skewed results in all sorts of ways, and um, and and I mean the same for the people that invent all these things, right? Like if you look at the sort of diversity of uh, tech entrepreneurs, for example, um, that's not an accurate reflection of society, in my opinion. And so a lot of ideas um, come from maybe, you know, cultural blind spots or societal blind spots. Um, and they might not be as good. Like we as white men think that they're fine, but uh, a lot of people don't experience it the way we do, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I think you know, for every sort of new um, development, you have to consider that, you know, it might look good for us or good for you and me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be good for the world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, I'm, so I'm, I'm just really skeptical about those kind of uh, developments. Yeah, I'm, you know, with, with good reason. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Fair like, enough. Yeah. So, um, so related to what you just said, actually, I was going to ask you about, I mean, well, you, you mentioned that you, during the pandemic and during the kind of development of your, of the program that you ran sessions, um, to do with, you know, the George Floyd's events and the reactions to it and Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and that stuff. I mean, I'm, that, that really interests me. What was, what was the nature of those sessions and, and what was the, uh, what did you, well, what, what happened in those sessions? Tell me. Um, I think, um, I guess we, we started doing the sessions um, just because people needed an outlet, you know, there was uh, obviously a lot of sort of discourse online and, uh, you know, people arguing on Twitter about stuff and, you know, this guy is bad and this guy is bad. And, and I think people just wanted, uh, just a little bit of room to just be able to tell others about their experiences. Um, and, uh, I, I do remember, for example, a friend of mine was on one of those sessions as well. And, um, he grew up in Minneapolis, you know, where all the sort of uh, riots yep. took place in the beginning. And um, so he was following that side of the story pretty much, you know, the sort of what the impact on the actual city was and what was happening in the city. Um, while others, you know, maybe translated it more to personal stories, you know, that they, stuff that they experienced themselves um, when it came to racism um, and police violence. And then there was others that, you know, translated it to the music industry, for example, and how embedded a lot of this sort of systemic 
uh, racism is in the music industry nowadays, you know? So there was like different viewpoints and that that's really what the sessions were about, just to sort of give a little bit of space to those uh, different opinions and different uh, perspectives, you know? So it wasn't really meant to be like some sort of grand idea about how we were going to fix it all. It was much more about just being able to express opinions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How important, I'm not sure how to phrase this, Like, how important is having a high level of literacy in that kind of area? How important is that in the kind of, in the development of someone's career? Say someone's coming into music now, right? Mm -hmm. A, A kid. How important is it to understand those issues and how, well, yeah, just that, just that question really. Yeah. Um, well, very important, <laughs> I think. Um, I think, um, okay, so I think when, um, when George Floyd, well, happened, you know, when that sort of, uh, uh, when the riots took place, etc., and the sort of conversation was moved to, the, to our sort of realm, you know, the music industry, um, mm. I think uh, that was kind of a good time to investigate what systems are in place that perpetuate racism. And again, you know, just like in the example with AI, like we are in a position like as white guys uh, where we have certain blind spots for certain things that happen in the music industry that we don't really see as, uh, you know, bad, but they are bad to others, you know? And I think sort of by talking about it and by reading about it and also uh, just by sort of reflecting on your own career and, you know, your own sort of history, um, you can uh, unearth these kind of systems and you can be more uh, aware of them in the future, right? And it doesn't mean that we can solve the problem. I don't think you can solve the problem, but um, I do think that there are pretty easy ways to uh, make sure that those systems are not perpetuated or at least reinforced, you know? And I think that's a task for everyone, not just for, definitely not for black people, but especially for white people in the music industry, you know? So that's important. I think it's very important. And uh, if you sort of look back at us, you know, um, sort of coming up in around the same time in this sort of like dubstep realm in the UK, um, we could sort of go back and reflect on how our careers were built and uh, we can sort of see if there was, uh, if we encountered any sort of systems of racism in how our careers were built and also how other careers weren't built, you know? And I think that's a that's a really interesting conversation. I don't know if you want to have that, but... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as you were saying that, and it's really funny because, I mean, you're absolutely right to say that. I mean, if you're in a if you're a member of a group which is a, in a position of relative power, then yeah, clearly you've got to keep an eye on that and keep an eye on how that affects your your viewpoint and your view on the world, right? Um, and as you were saying that, I was, I was thinking, well, I'll tell you exactly my exact thought process. Like, first of all, I, I was in London, therefore it's a big multicultural place, and I was in the kind of underground, quote unquote, underground garage scene, and that's a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial environment. So I was thinking, eh, okay, so that's probably not too much. And then, I, and then I thought, and I wasn't really involved with the kind of music industry, quote unquote, 
um, which is to say major labels and all that stuff. And that's where most of the egregious power playing, you know, with um, in, in which these the, the more egregious examples of these things play out, right? So that was my sort of white guy uh, self you know, defense mechanism yep. <laughs> working, right? Yep. And as soon as, as soon as I got, I was like, shit, that's exactly this is exactly what he's talking about, isn't it? Fuck. It is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So go on, tell me, tell me, tell me how I'm, tell me how I'm fucking up. I mean, um, you know, the fact that something's multicultural doesn't mean that everyone in that multi- multicultural environment has the same opportunities, right? Um, so even saying, oh, in London, it's all fine. Uh, that's definitely not true, in my opinion. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll just give you a really concrete, concrete example, right? Like when I was sort of thinking about uh, this sort of post-garage world, right? Like, yeah, dubstep uh, came up. That was sort of uh, mid-2000s. And then uh, out of that, you know, came people like me and 2562 and you and, you know, Apple Blim and Joy O and Borka, people like that, you know, this sort of wave of people that kind of made like interpretations of dubstep, I would call it, like what mm-hmm. what they called like future garage or whatever stupid word post dubstep post dubstep <laughs> ah. anyway you know that you know the 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 sort of uh, uh time frame i'm talking about right of course um and i do remember you know when when this happened um for me dubstep was um definitely sort of multicultural and you know there was um black people making dubstep and there was white people making dubstep and um both uh were thriving uh in this small scene at the mo- at that time you know the sort of forward dmz scene um then um you got all these sort of post dubstep people and there was definitely loads of that was that also felt quite mixed but i do remember a time you know when the uk press started writing about post dubstep and about future garage and all that stuff where slowly but surely like a lot of um you know black voices in my opinion were sort of filtered out and at the end, there was only 10 pasty white guys making post-dubstep and were talked about that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a little bit more detailed than that. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. say there's, there's another detail. I don't think it's just the black voices that were sort of filtered out. I think it was also the like lower lower social class voices too. Yes, yeah. Right? And this this is a really key. I think in in the UK, this is our speciality, right? The, the class system is absolutely what we do, but it's also true elsewhere as well, yeah, right? Yeah. And I think like lots of the um, uh, lots of the problems which were associated with ethnic groups can be mapped onto economic class, right? Yeah. And they that's not that's not the whole story, certainly not. Yeah. But the two things do correlate to to a large extent, and obviously they are not unrelated in of themselves, too, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, if you sort of think about this this uh, uh, development, what were the systems in place that made that development happen, right? Like what was what were the yeah, like what what were the systems? And I think once you sort of identify that, uh, you can then be more wary of them or be aware of them in the future, right? And so. I think those systems of like sort of erasing people uh, in favor of people that just, I don't know, 
just look more cookie cutter, maybe, or uh, more whatever you want to call it. Well, I, well I, I, okay, <laughs> let me let me give you my direct theory about that that example, and I'm sure it's true for, for many miles, many others. The people who were writing those articles were white middle class people, yes, and they they biased towards people who look like them, look and are like themselves, yes, right. And this is a and, and this is true also with um, you know, in club promotions and record labels and the back end of the industry more generally. But I think it's particularly pronounced in the press and it's particularly obvious in the outcomes of, of the, the music press too, right? And that's just a great example of it. Yeah, yeah. Because in most cases, you know, people that, people that are writers, they have the uh, opportunities and the privilege maybe to be able to do that work, you know, slightly, you know, not paid or, uh, you know, maybe they uh, can do it... Um, while in uni or stuff like that, you know, so it's already, it already comes from this place of privilege, right? That's why uh, a lot of people in the press, um, yeah, are there, <laughs> you know, but I mean, like you said, like it's, it's sort of in every, uh, in every section of the music industry. And so, um, like I said, I mean, it's not to sort of dig, uh, have a dig at all these people. It's about the systems that are in place, right? And the sort of blind spots that these people had, but also that we have. And I think if you can identify that, then you're already in a much better place than, you know, before George Floyd. And that's, I think, the point of this is like, not necessarily to fix it, because I don't think anyone can fix it, but, you know, to at least sort of be more cognizant of those kind of systems, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, and it's weird because, you know, when I, when we sort of, uh, when I start, started thinking about it, I was like, man, I was, I was part of that. I was part of whitewashing, you know, it's awful. And so um, I think I mean, it well, wasn't my I, fault, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think you can be a bit hard on yourself. No, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's obviously not my fault, but it does sort of prove that uh, how blind you can be if you're not personally affected by it, right? And how easy it is to not be, to uh, not, not see it, you know? And I think that's important. Well, the, the, natural, the natural view to take when you, when you receive favorable coverage is that you're getting this coverage on purely on the merit of your work right yeah who else would think anything any different right so yeah there's no one who would think yeah well it takes somewhat it takes an incredible amount of self-awareness and honesty to identify yourself as being the recipient of that sort of bias right it really does yes yeah yeah and i mean yeah like i still consider you know my music had sort of a place there which is, it's not like, you know, my music was absolutely awful and I just got there because of, I don't think that, you know, but I do think that it's really important to be aware of it, you know, that uh, maybe it was just easier for you and me than it was for others, you know, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just the way that the systems work, you know. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's a really important conversation to have, especially among white people. And um, and, and it's something, you know, you can see those systems in all sorts of um, different corners of the music industry and everywhere else, too, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just have a think about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I will. I'll go away and meditate on that. Right. Okay. So let's move on from a serious subject into something a little bit more light, shall we? I mentioned before our conversation that I was going to be asking you about football. Okay. <laughs> in this conversation yeah your father your father was a professional footballer yes he was um he um 
Yeah, he played for PSV Eindhoven, which is uh, this, the team from the city where um, I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted, okay, so I had some, I had a specific question which does sort of relate to music actually. So, I mean, and Dutch football in particular has been in the news recently for the wrong reasons, right? The incident at the Ajax game and incidents of, of hooliganism more generally. Mm hmm. In in England, we have this kind of legend of Acid House solving the hooliganism problem. Yeah. Was there something similar in in Holland at all? That's a good question. Um, Maybe Gabba? I think, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, Definitely not at the moment because, um, you know, the sort of aggression. Yeah, I mean, I mean the uh, sure. I mean, that, that's go- I'm going back thirty years. Yeah, you know, with with that with that. Yeah. Um, observation in England, but um, I mean, um, I think you know, I think Gabba never really got its credit uh, that it deserved uh, for being um, a really tight knit music community because maybe to outsiders it looked more violent and more depraved than it actually was. Kind of similar, I guess, to the Acid House world in uh, in the UK, right? Mm. Um, but um, the, I think um, there's a, a famous director in Holland who, um, who recently announced a movie about the GABA scene. Or I think it's like a story, but it's set in the GABA scene in that sort of era of the like late 90s, uh, which I'm kind of curious to watch. I think that'll be good. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, um, as a sort of music scene, it was really strong and, you know, people really sort of came together and looked after each other and, uh, not really th- a thing that I was particularly interested in, but well, it was kind of funny because where I grew up was kind of like a smaller village when I was young mm. and, um, we were sort of like the skate crew. So we would hang out at this mini ramp every day and sort of just skate and, you know, smoke cigarettes and stuff like that. And then there was a little crew of Gabbas um, who would uh, just hang out with us, you know. And um, and so this crew would, you know, show up every night and uh, just sort of chat away and whatever, just hanging, you know. And then on the weekends, they'd be gone because then they'd be at some rave. And then on Sunday afternoon, they'd be back and they'd be sleeping in this field next to the mini ramp, you know. And so... So we had, that was kind of like my sort of closest proximity to the Gabba scene was that, um, you know, slowly but surely we just saw these guys like looking worse and worse because, you know, the drugs got worse and the parties were longer and, you know, it just got sort of out of hand quite quickly. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was, a, that was kind of like what I remember from the Gabba scene when I grew up, you know, but, um, I do think, um, yeah, looking back on it, I think there's, uh, yeah, it was a really sort of interesting seen with their own codes and their own, you know, way of dressing and music and yeah. Well, we I was, that was I was actually going to ask what what did they what was the fashion sense in the Gabba scene in, in Netherlands? Uh, just Australians, you know the the tracksuits. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like these really sort of you know like purple and green and white and you know fluorescent yellow kind of tracksuits, like really over the top, and then and then bald, you know, and that was it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> What was the first dance music that you got into? Um, I think it was, um, well, I kind of came from uh, going to like punk shows and indie rock shows and things like that to Detroit Techno, which 
sounds like a, a, a kind of weird transition, but um, there was a club in Eindhoven that I used to go to, uh, which is kind of like an after hours club. Mm. And because Eindhoven is kind of between, say, Amsterdam and then Ghent and Antwerp in Belgium. Um, so a lot of these, uh, a lot of DJs that would play in either city, they would sort of play afters in Eindhoven. And, um, and so when I was really young, um, I was able to get into this club uh, called Funky Business. And uh, yeah, there was like all these Detroit techno DJs and Chicago people and a couple, uh, you know, Dutch sort of greats like DJ Dimitri and people like that. And so uh, that's kind of the first music I heard, which was kind of like a mix between sort of clubby house and techno, I would say. And I mean, you were first became, well, you first became known as a producer making drum and bass. Mm -hmm. So, so what was the, what was the route into drum and bass? So, um, I guess, um, I always bought records anyway like i started buying vinyl at a very very young age because my dad also collected records so it was kind of a natural thing to also just start buying music mm. and so um i started buying you know house records and techno records and also quite a lot of sort of down tempo-y stuff like sort of early early ninja tune and mo wax and you know that excursion series you remember that like the yeah. sort of 1993 1994 or so and um and basically just on the on the B sides of some of those records were drum and bass remixes. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And then I started buying like early Fotech and things like that. And I just really liked all the intricacies with, you know, beat programming and you know how they created all these atmospheres. And I was really into science fiction at that time as well. So any reference to like Blade Runner or UFOs or I was really into that, you know. So so that whole sort of sci-fi feel and then combined with, you know, all this beat trickery, I thought was really interesting. And then there was actually um, in in my sort of city where there were already really good drum and bass nights. Um, so I saw like Randall play and Groove Rider and Crust I saw a couple times. Um, and so... Yeah, like before I knew it, um, you know, we decided to just throw our own parties. You know, we had a couple records, not really that many. And uh, me and a friend decided to just do a party. And I think the first party that we did was like four people came to the party. <laughs> and um, obviously we had no, yeah, we had no idea what we were doing. And we also didn't know how to book any DJs or didn't even know any DJs. So uh, I would just show up with all my records and just play them one by one. And, um, you know, figure out how to mix between them. So I literally sort of learned on the job and uh, tried to sort of, you know, play a set of music mm. that was um, sort of coherent. And uh, slowly but surely the parties grew and, you know, my DJing got a little bit better. And um, then there was a, a, a small venue called Le Beat in Eindhoven, which um, had kind of like an open decks night. And uh, every Thursday, you could just bring your records and play. And so uh, I would go there every Thursday and practice. And that's kind of how I started DJing. Really? That's a great way of practicing, actually, isn't it? In yeah. front of people on a sound system without, any, without too much pressure, but, a, but enough pressure to make it a thing, right? So the, the guy who ran the, it was kind of like a bar. And um, the way he ran it was that there was a different style of music every day. So Thursday was drum and bass, and then I think Friday was uh, hip-hop, and then Saturday was techno. 
And then Sunday was like techno with a K, you know, that like really loud sort of GABA-esque stuff. And then I think Mondays were reggae or something like that. I can't remember exactly. And so so the music policy was the, you know, per day. And then whatever you had musically, you could sort of bring. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could just practice uh, live. And I mean, it wasn't like massive club or anything, but just enough to sort of, you know, get that experience of playing on, you know, in front of people. And uh, I was awful in the beginning, you know, but, you know, you just sort of learn as you go. And, um, and it was really much, much later that I had my own decks in the house and uh, was able to practice uh, in my own room. But yeah, like most of the sort of early stuff I just learned um, in the club. Yeah, I mean, I often reference the first couple of times I had, or the first time I really had a proper um, experience playing in a club and had been was was absolutely like you know impeccably practiced at home yeah and it was just a rude awakening playing, playing on a big system you know with the super loud monitors and shit and it's oh god it was it was a it was it was a traumatic experience for me i have to say it was uh, extremely difficult it's uh i have um i have one record that um i think there's a johnny l record mm. that i was djing uh, at, at this bar and um i remember it because um it's completely white. And uh, when I was sort of DJing, I guess one of the strobe lights in the bar uh, caught fire. Oh, right. And the guy behind the bar was like, oh, we need to, you know, we need to sort this out. So he took this massive uh, fire extinguisher, you know, the powder ones, right. and he sort of blasted the strobe. But I was under the strobe. So <laughs> I was basically completely white and all my records were also white and I was never able to clean it. <laughs> so so I have one Johnny L record that's just completely white with this sort of fire extinguisher powder. <laughs> so, so that was the vibe at the bar. Yeah, fair enough, man. Listen, this has been great. Um, just before we go, mm-hmm. um, I find now that we've been talking about drum and bass, what's your top three drum and bass tunes of all time? horrible question to be asked i know but <laughs> yeah I, I don't think there's an answer um one has to be silver blade i would say that's definitely top five ever for me mm. by dillinger yeah it's hard because like what's a, what's the top is it like the most important tune musically is it something that you like personally or yeah the, just uh, your favorites the, the ones that not even your favorites actually just the ones that you know stick out to you I think I think Grey Odyssey by Optical would be one. Yeah. Um, Silver Blade by Dillinger, and something older. Um, hmm. Or maybe Soul Emotion by Crust. Hmm. I mean, that's three nice. heavy, heavy <laughs> tunes. That would be okay. Let's just say they would be in my top ten, and then I'll get back to you about the other seven. <laughs> Yeah, Martin, thanks for your time, man. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was Martin. What an interesting conversation. We really dug into some stuff there. It could quite easily have just gone the familiar what do you do in your career (laughs) format, but we really talked about stuff, important stuff for basically the entirety of that conversation. I wanted to ask him more about football, but he just wasn't having it. He answered my football question (laughs) going straight into Gabba. So fair enough. That's a sidestep of an answer. Politician's answer to my football question. But yeah, really, really great. Really, really enjoyed it. He's a, yeah, he's a smart guy and he's doing really, really great work and has been for a long time. Okay. Reminder, 
that you can support the show directly via subscription or in a one-off format, go to go to scubaofficial.io slash support in order to do that. We'd be extremely grateful. It would really, really help, actually, if you found it in the kindness of your heart to do that. If you don't want to, if you can't afford it, that's also cool. Hit the follow button, hit the rating button, leave us a gushing review wherever you're listening to this. That would also help. It really would. Follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes, and join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to say anything you want about the show. And I will see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not Diving Podcast. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.